week. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay. You're a psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And it's my goal to bring you everything related to the mind, brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into potential new treatments for mental illness and insights into its causes. Along the way, trying to better educate the general public about mental health issues and to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis, bringing you all of that without the hype and distortion of other media sources with the benefit of almost 25 years in the practice of psychiatry and anything and everything that's current from the past week or two or sometimes more related to mental health. So welcome again. This show was pre-recorded to be aired on Wednesday, September the 2nd, 2015. Sorry, I couldn't be with you last week. Took some time off. Hopefully you enjoyed some vacation time this past summer. You know, we Americans are notorious for not taking our vacation time that we have coming to us. And this just adds unnecessarily to our stress level. So hopefully you did take a vacation. If you haven't yet, make sure you schedule it and make sure that when you go, you disconnect completely on your vacation. If you're going to be checking email or voicemail related to work, if you're going to take your work laptop with you, you could be in Bora Bora. It's still not a vacation if you're doing that. Come on. Disconnect. Leave all that stuff home. And if you find it that hard to do it, go somewhere where there is no connectivity. And so there's no choice in the matter. You say, gee, sorry, you know, where we are, there's just very, very poor cellular coverage. Uh, Won't be able to stay in touch. Uh, Sorry, you'll have to figure it out. That's what it takes. Go ahead and do it. Because uh, with Labor Day coming this coming Monday, that signals the hard end of summer. Why do I say hard end? Well, I guess you could say the soft end of summer is when school starts. Most places, especially up north where I'm from, that's usually after Labor Day. But down here in Georgia, school already started a couple of weeks ago, in some cases three weeks ago. So, but as far as the true end of summer, beginning of fall, that's usually Labor Day. And uh, so by now, if you haven't taken your vacation, definitely make plans to do so. You need it. Um, Don't worry that you're going to compromise your job. If you're well-rested and you've recharged your batteries, believe me, that is going to help with your job. All right, well, having said that, let's get right to recent and important mental health-related news. After all, that's what you're listening to this podcast for. Well, 
unfortunately, we have another shooting to talk about. I'm sorry if you're bored with that, but I can't very well present this as a podcast about current mental health issues and ignore these situations, as tiresome as it is that they keep coming up, and as horribly sad as well. So now we're going to look at the motivations behind the WDBJ on-air shooting and take a look at how anger turns to violence. It was last Tuesday, August 26th, well, a week ago this Tuesday, uh, August 26th, 6.45 in the morning, reporter Allison Parker and photojournalist Adam Ward were in the middle of a lakeside interview for Virginia's WDBJ-TV. The morning was quiet, cameras were rolling, all attention was turned toward the job. And no one noticed as ex-WDBJ employee Vester Lee Flanagan crept up to the scene before he shot his former colleagues during the live broadcast. Parker, was 24 years old, and Ward, who was 27 years old, were killed. The interviewee, Vicki Gardner, was also shot, but was expected to recover. Flanagan fled the scene as authorities followed after him. At 8.26 a.m., a 26-page fax landed in the machine at ABC News. It was a suicide note and a manifesto from Flanagan, known professionally as Bryce Williams. The document detailed a man descending further and further into fits of rage and madness. He wrote about discrimination in the workplace for his race and sexual orientation by both white women and black men. He expressed admiration for the mass shooters of Columbine High School and Virginia Tech University. He admitted to being all effed up in the head. Flanagan said he put a deposit down on a gun on June the 19th, two days after 21-year-old Dylan Roof opened fire at a church meeting in Charleston, South Carolina. He wrote in his manifesto, The church shooting was the tipping point, but my anger has been building steadily. I've been a human powder keg for a while, just waiting to go boom. At around 11.30 a.m. that morning, police identified a vehicle they believed to be Flanagan's. He refused to pull over for a trooper and tried to flee. He eventually crashed into an embankment. Flanagan ended his life with a self-inflicted shotgun wound to the head. Now again, we're going to examine when does anger turn to violence. Where did Flanagan's aggression come from and why was it directed at his former colleagues? Anger is an emotion that carries a lot of energy with it. Something something that 
psychologists and psychiatrists refer to as arousal. We often think of angry people as explosive or on the edge. That energy has to go somewhere, and people find different ways to deal with that energy. Some fortunately channel it into productive action, and some get aggressive. Obviously, we all experience the sting of rage and frustration from time to time. However, there's a big difference between someone who gets angry and someone who is angry, constantly frustrated, anxious, and venomous. These individuals have created a cycle of behaviors that maintain their angry state. Often they ruminate. They get into a cycle of thoughts that focus them on the object of their anxiety and anger, and they maintain that arousal level. For Flanagan, that cycle may have centered on his work life, which was seemingly filled with tension. He had a reputation for being difficult to work with, according to a BBC report, and had lodged complaints against colleagues many times in the past. Our world is set up to breed chronic stress and anxiety, especially as it relates to work, although we are not biologically set up to handle it. We are neurologically wired for flight or fight or short-term stress. If you look at this in an evolutionary fashion, we either run from the saber-toothed tiger and get away, or we have to fight it. Either way, the stressor is resolved quickly. But modern man is faced with stress that begins before we get to work, throughout the workday, and then in rush hour traffic at night, for at least five days a week, week after week, month after month. Ongoing stress and ruminating on angry thoughts without a proper outlet has the potential to escalate toward violence. Those aggressive acts may start with long written tracts about the problems with the world and the ways that it could be fixed. Something Flanagan participated in on Twitter, Facebook, and within his lengthy faxed manifesto. Ultimately, that could, in a small number of cases, lead to violent outbursts like this one we saw a week ago Tuesday. It is also not uncommon to see violence directed at colleagues, current or former. People are generally aggressive toward people they know. Random acts against strangers are more rare. The two most common sources of relationships are home and work, so it is therefore no surprise that we see both domestic violence and cases of workplace aggression. <clears throat> now, everyone feels angry from time to time, but how do we express it? Anger and aggression don't necessarily go hand in hand. But as humans in Western society, most of us aren't comfortable with feelings of discontent, and we certainly don't know what to do with them or how to channel them. Most of us are taught as children 
that anger is wrong to feel, let alone to express, when in fact emotions are not good or bad, right or wrong. They simply are. Some emotions are uncomfortable, like sadness, fear, anxiety, or frustration, and they demand an appropriate outlet, or they will eventually find one on their own. Ignoring a powerful emotion like anger never lasts. The remnants will always manifest somewhere. Now, let's take our first commercial break. We'll continue this discussion when we come back, and we'll have other non-psychiatry and the law-related mental health news later in the show, I promise. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. will be right back with you after this break. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott. Dr. Scott Bay, you're a psychiatrist with all the latest mental health news. And I am examining how anger turns to violence in the aftermath of uh, yet another shooting for uh, two members of a Virginia TV station who lost their lives. Now, ignoring a powerful emotion like anger never lasts. The remnants manifest themselves somewhere. Anger is a secondary emotion fueled by some sort of hurt, a natural byproduct of the human experience. When we suppress these feelings, it either takes a toll internally with issues like headaches, gastrointestinal problems, and high blood pressure, or it's expressed externally with emotional or behavioral discontrol. Discontrol being the inability to regulate our feelings appropriately, leading to disturbing or abnormal behaviors. There's been a rise in highly publicized shootings and other 
incidents of violent behavior, thus role modeling for would-be aggressors. Just look at this latest incident in which uh, Flanagan admires the shooters of Columbine and Virginia Tech. Now, as a result, many angry people now believe violence is a viable option for dealing with their emotional response. These people see murder as among their choices in responding to a stressful situation. But emotional or behavioral discontrol is not necessary. Of course, people need to know that there are healthier ways to respond to stress. But this is presuming that someone hasn't yet crossed that threshold to where they've gone to a place that is deep and dark and angry and ruminative and constantly thinking about and plotting uh, their violent way to vent their anger. Uh, of course, things like exercise, journaling thoughts and feelings, talking with clergy or a close friend, seeking a mental health professional, perhaps including psychiatric medications, would all be considered adaptive, healthier ways of trying to get help for dealing with one's anger. A psychologist encountering someone ruminating on angry thoughts would want to work with this person to help him or her to break the cycle of thoughts that are contributing to the anxiety or anger. And if a job is leading to daily extreme unresolved stress, the advice is fairly straightforward. Simply leave it. However, offering help to someone who's angry presumes that they actually realize and understand that they have a problem. What I think this article misses the point about is that many people, such as Flanagan, think their anger is justified and in their own minds uh, is due to other people's actions against them. And someone like this is not likely to say, hey, I have a problem with anger. I better go see a psychologist. Uh, furthermore, while I'm always a strong proponent of the idea that no job is worth your health, it isn't so straightforward to leave your job if it's causing you that much stress and making you extremely angry. Certainly a lot better now in 2015 than it would have been, say, in 2008 during the height of uh, the terrible recession and, and much, much worse unemployment that we have now. But it's, it's still not so straightforward. Now let's talk about the whole issue of reaching the breaking point. Flanagan didn't leave his job at WDBJ. He was terminated. Despite his boss's urging, it does not appear he sought mental help for dealing with his constant frustration, the unfounded perceived slights by co-workers over many years in journalism and aggressive tendencies. So this is an example of what I'm talking about. Someone with this type of problem with anger lacks insight into it, and therefore even if someone tries to encourage them to get help, 
it's not as if they're going to say, yep, you're right, I got a problem with anger, I better go get that taken care of. Now, according to ABC, the lengthy letter that Flanagan faxed to them said he stopped looking for a job after his most recent termination. All signs show that Flanagan had likely reached the end of his rope. In some instances of violent behavior, circumstances may meet cultural influence. The odds of aggression rise when a society has access to dramatic cases of violence like Charleston, South Carolina, Columbine, Colorado, and Virginia Tech in Virginia, and finds in those examples both a means and a justification for aggressive action. Flanagan references all three of these shootings as either inspiration or motivation for his own crime in the manifesto he sent to ABC News. By taking his own life, he eliminated the repercussions he would have faced. We usually moderate our basic violent tendencies to avoid the consequences of our actions. There is an increasing number of cases in which the consequences are eliminated by suicide. Taking his own life may have given Flanagan a sense of control in a situation in which he felt he had none. The conversation surrounding these murders will likely come back to mental illness and firearms, as it has in the past. An individual in pain who felt he had no alternatives versus having the legal access to a means of inflicting harm. In reality, the breaking point where anger led to violence was likely a blend of many factors. The man had apparently reached the point when successive job problems, largely of his own making, could no longer enable him a functional life and career. When he reached the point where his own life mattered little, he was able to make a final and vicious act define his life. Likely in his world, it finally gave him the notoriety that eluded him. Now, what about the problem of prevention? Could the perpetrator have been stopped? This question has been and will be asked following every national tragedy of this sort. We will continue to discuss the effects, gun control, and better treatment options for the mentally ill might have on a global scale. Unfortunately, it is incredibly hard, if not impossible, to predict when anger might lead to violence on a case-by-case basis, even though there is often so much evidence found in the aftermath. In hindsight, the clues always seem obvious. For instance, Social media played a huge role in the attack and its subsequent circulation. Flanagan posted bizarre content to social media in the days before he attacked the two young journalists, including what appeared to be test videos in advance of the final film he posted of the shooting. 
Even coupled with his history of angry behavior, though, nothing suggested that he would act out in this manner. While researchers have pinpointed some factors that increase the likelihood of violence, it's only a successful tactic in identifying large groups at risk of aggression, not individuals. In a day and age where everything is monitored online, we will see more of the trails criminals blaze on social media leading up to their violent episodes. If you think about a flowchart that leads to violent outbursts, long-term anger, and anxiety, all this can lead people to write extensively about their complaints and even these days to post those complaints to social media. But only a fraction of those people who are angry enough to write something expressing dissatisfaction, even the desire for revenge or violence, go on to commit violent acts. While a psychologist might help an individual in a clinical setting, presuming that individual wanted help, it is less clear how law enforcement can help prevent violence. There aren't enough resources in law enforcement to do an extensive investigation of every angry person or every social media rant. There is simply too much noise to zero in on exactly who might be a potential danger. Anger is a risk factor, but anger and anxiety alone do not predict that someone will engage in an act of deliberate violence. It's a devastating problem to which we're desperately seeking an answer, especially for victims like the newly engaged WB, WDBJ photographer Ward and reporter Parker, who had just celebrated her 24th birthday. <clears throat> and just as uh, with previous incidents that has uh, rekindled the debate between the NRA, who are firmly on the side of maintaining ready access to firearms, but yet trying to improve treatment of the mentally ill, and those on the side of gun control advocates. Uh, but I can't help thinking that with this country clinging so tightly to their Second Amendment rights, um, ironically, the only defense against these random killings uh, or unpredictable killings may be the NRA stance that people should have the right to, uh, as law-abiding citizens, protect themselves with guns. Um, a very sobering thought, I agree. But what else are the solutions since we cannot predict these events? All right, be right back after this break. This is Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. 
These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. My name is Dr. Jeff Terry from Mobile, Alabama. I love taking care of my patients and not computers. That is why I need your help. On October 1st, the government will mandate that I implement the new ICD-10 coding system, and if not able to do so, then I will be put out of business and my patients will have to find a new physician. Please call and write your congressmen and senators today and tell them no to ICD-10. Tell them physicians need a grace period in order to concentrate on you, the patient, and not the computer. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news. Now, I know I said I was hopefully going to lighten the show up a little bit, but since we were already on the subject of mental health issues and murder, here's one more brief item. The study that came out recently pinpoints the kind of man who murders his partner. Uh, The kind of man who kills his wife or family fits a pattern, and this new understanding of who commits this kind of murder could help prevent them from happening in the first place. Um, It is an ugly reality that the only way to perhaps prevent these types of tragedies that always wind up in the news and therefore I wind up talking about them to you is to profile. You know, profiling certainly uh, has just a horribly negative connotation, especially racial profiling. But, you know, unfortunately, uh, law enforcement will tell you that uh, it does help them uh, to prevent crimes. So a report from Northwestern University researchers in the Journal of Forensic Sciences uh, concludes after interviewing and evaluating 153 murderers for more than 1,500 hours, um, domestic homicide is one of the most common types of murder in the United States one-third of all murdered American women are killed at the hands of their male partners, current or former. How often do we hear about these horribly tragic cases of women who were chronically abused, harassed, stalked by their partner or ex-partner, 
to no avail when they go to the police or courts, orders of protection, cease and desist orders, what have you. They're not even worth the paper they're printed on. Now, among the things these killers have in common, well, severe mental illness, especially psychotic disorders. Uh, And again, this is very unfair, of course. This is going to be extremely and severely offensive to mental health advocates uh, and uh, psychiatric researchers correctly are quick to point out that those with severe mental illness are much, much more likely to be a victim of violence, not to commit violence. Uh, But nonetheless, if you interview 150 some odd mass murderers, this is what you're going to find. And then of course, along with uh, typically a few previous felony convictions, lower intelligence, low emotional and impulse control, no surprise there, and greater cognitive impairment. And when I read about this, at first it didn't click, but then the context of having uh, read something in the paper just the other day, children who grow up in poverty have higher rates of cognitive impairment. Uh, So this may be why uh, there are higher rates of uh, violence and murder in those populations. Uh, but these types of murders we're talking about, where a, a man is killing his partner, are typically called in the heat of passion. They generally involve drugs or alcohol, and they are often driven by jealousy or revenge following a separation or a split. This is grabbing the kitchen knife out of the drawer in a fit of anger and stabbing her 42 times. In fact, guns are the murder weapon in only 14% of these cases. Knives, bats, hammers, clubs, rocks, and fists were other weapons used by the men interviewed. These crimes are often preventable if family members are more informed about the potential danger from having someone who is severely mentally ill in the home and who may have shown violent tendencies in the past. The fact is the husband or son may very well harm the wife or mother. For example, The man who recently murdered six kids and their parents in Houston, Texas, was an estranged boyfriend. Well, as far as law enforcement, again, as repugnant as the entire notion of profiling is, uh, it's the only shot they have at trying to prevent crimes before they happen. As for women who in most cases are able to predict that they will be victims of such violence, uh, do what they can to protect themselves. Perhaps that would include getting a permit to carry a firearm, but more importantly, getting comfortable using it. Go to a shooting range, stay in good practice, 
I definitely understand these are strong words in my comments before about uh, how to protect ourselves from random, unpredictable violence. Strong words coming from a psychiatrist, a physician, a healing mental health professional. But I think after studying human behavior for as long as I have, unfortunately the conclusion is inescapable. Uh, law enforcement are powerless to prevent us from situations like this. There is inadequate security in public places to prevent these tragedies. And furthermore, this country clings to its Second Amendment rights too dearly to limit access to weapons used to commit these crimes. Uh, therefore, what other choice is to be better protected ourselves? Uh, the women who were victims of these types of crimes know all too well what's coming, and no amount of uh, court orders are, are able to uh, prevent these incidents. Well, <clears throat> move on to non-legal issue-related subjects like I promised before. You know, for years and years and years, I've said in the intro to my show that one of the things I like to discuss uh, is how to rid yourself of bad habits. <clears throat> so when I saw this article about how to make sustained changes and uh, maybe drop bad habits for good, I said, wow, this is a great explanation, and I really need to talk about this on the podcast. So... Here goes, changing habits for good. As you've probably experienced or at least witnessed, it's hard to change bad health habits. Yes, some people manage to keep their health-related New Year's resolutions or one day simply decide that from now on they will, for instance, drink less alcohol or stop altogether, cease being a couch potato, or eat vegetables instead of junk food, and they just do it, never backsliding. Every year, millions do manage to quit smoking, for example, or lose lots of weight and keep most of it off. But such success stories are in the minority. Most attempts at behavior change fail sooner or later, and many people struggle for years to change with or without professional help. Why do some succeed and others fail? Are there ways to improve your chances? How do people transition from being not ready to getting ready to finally ready to change? Many behavioral psychologists and other experts have tried to answer such questions. One well-known researcher in this field is James Prochaska, Ph.D., professor of psychology at the University of Rhode Island, who more than 30 years ago first explained the process of change as five stages described in uh, the following manner. Some studies have found, for instance, that people coached in this stages of change approach improved their odds of quitting smoking, eating more healthfully, 
or complying with medication or other treatment for various chronic diseases. So let's talk about the five stages. Simply put, Prochaska's main point is that changing behavior is not an event, but a process. I think that's very important. Let me emphasize that. Changing behavior is a process, not an event. His stages make the process sound orderly, but it's often messy. Some people progress steadily from stage to stage, but many others stall at one stage or slide back to earlier stages several times before they finally succeed. So therefore, the stages are to be presented in order with the understanding that uh, when people go through the process of changing behavior, they don't necessarily follow the stages one through five in this manner. So the first stage is called pre-contemplation. Unfortunately, many people never get further than this stage. For example, you may vaguely know that it's unhealthy to be obese, but you don't think about actually cutting calories. You may feel fatalistic or hopeless or simply deny that you have a problem. If you do attempt to take action, it may be because your family or friends push you to do it, but your heart isn't in it. So again, pre-contemplation, meaning you're not really thinking that much about actually taking steps to change behavior. Uh, you're just sort of aware on some level there might possibly be an issue that needs to be addressed. But more so that other people pointed out to you, not that uh, you yourself consider it a problem that needs to be addressed. All right, well... The other five stages of changing habits, let me present those to you after our next commercial break, and we'll have other mental health-related news after that. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Join you again right after this break. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? 
and what is the best place to go for the care that is needed. We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Talking about changing bad health habits and presenting you the five stages of making changes, according to Dr. James Prochaska, who first proposed this system 30 years ago. We already talked about the first stage, pre-contemplation, where you just have a vague sense of something wrong you may need to change. Now, if you're lucky, you get past that and get into stage two, which is contemplation, in which you accept the fact that you have a problem and need to change. This is the most crucial step. And again, if you don't get past pre-contemplation, surely nothing is going to happen. If you have any hope there's going to be change, you have to at least get to the point where you accept that you have a problem, you need to change it. Now, in this stage, you may have some ideas or indefinite plans to take action in the next few months and perhaps even do some research, but you still aren't really committed to taking action. Um, Yet it's an important first corner that you've turned. In this stage, you're now more aware of how your bad habit is harming your health and interfering with your life. You may be inspired by a friend who has successfully changed. You make a mental list of the benefits that would accrue if you made changes. You also start believing that you can make the change, even visualizing the new you. And the next stage from here would be preparation. In this stage, you start planning a specific course of action and may set a date not too far off in the future, to start. Your belief in your ability to make the change becomes stronger than in the contemplation stage. You may tell your family and friends about it, thus uh, adding an element of accountability. If your goal is to exercise more, for example, you may buy a gym membership and new athletic shoes or talk with friends about joining them for daily exercise. Now, all this preparation shows that you're getting ready for the next stage, which is action. In this, the fourth stage, you actually walk the walk. You start eating at least five fruits and vegetables a day. You read food labels, shop for groceries more strategically, learn to cook healthier meals, keep only healthy snacks around. You go only to restaurants that offer healthy foods. You quit the clean plate club and start taking extra food home. You stop buying or bumming cigarettes, perhaps using nicotine patches or gum. Now, you may well slip back into your bad habit, but 
Importantly, you remind yourself that most people who have successfully changed also suffered relapses. And this is crucial. When that happens, it is not failure provided you get back on track again. And it's very, very important not to see that as failure to get discouraged and to give up and stop. Rather, the strategy is if you fall off the horse, get back up, dust yourself off, climb back on the horse, and keep riding. Now, the last of the five stages is the maintenance stage. This is often the most difficult stage. It may take months or even years, but your new healthy habit has become firmly embedded. Your old cravings occur less and less frequently, and you're better able to resist them. Junk food may actually not taste good anymore. You've learned to like exercise and miss it when you don't. You have strategies to avoid and deal with temptations and relapses. But if you do slip up, you have the recovery skills gained from the previous stages. For many people, this is the final stage where they remain for the rest of their lives. But Dr. Prochaska has added a sixth stage called termination for the few who are no longer tempted by their old habits and don't need to fear relapsing. Well, I would caution you about seeing that as a goal in and of itself. It is the exception that people are appropriate to get to that stage. Now, how can you improve your odds of changing these negative bad health habits? Well, here's some useful advice to accompany uh, the information about Prochaska's five stages of change. First of all, go slowly. Allow time. You won't reach each of these stages in a few days, and certainly not stage five. It may take weeks, months, or even years. Uh, the phrase, it's a marathon, not a sprint, comes to mind here. Um, and no one can tell you, well, you should be further along by this time. It's a highly individual thing. And as long as you're keeping the end goal in mind and moving toward it, it has to be at whatever pace it's comfortable for you. Be realistic and specific in your goals. If you're not specific about what goals you intend to reach, or your goals are too ambitious and unrealistic, then it's going to be unlikely you're going to reach them, and that's going to lead to disappointment, discouragement, and maybe just giving up. Also, start with small changes, incremental changes. If working out at the gym for an hour is off-putting, start with half-hour walks instead, or even 10 or 15 minutes if you're not ready for half an hour. It's easier to set and meet a few small goals than one big goal. Examine your beliefs to see if any of them are undermining your effort to change. For example, 
Do you tell yourself that you don't have time to exercise? If so, draw up a weekly schedule. Even 10-minute workouts, if done often enough, can improve your health. This is a very common complaint that I hear about a lot. Doctor, I just, I just really don't know. I don't have the time to exercise. How could I possibly find the time to fit it in? Well, I think that's true. Uh, I don't think that's the point. We're all extremely busy and overcommitted with our lives. We have our careers, our families, our kids, our, our long, difficult commutes. So, yes, take it as a given. There is no time for exercise. You have to take the time. That's the only choice. Because if you just allow each day to go by with its routine of activities and tasks and chores and work, and hopefully some leisure thrown in, then no. All of that will easily crowd out any time that you might otherwise spend exercising. So therefore, you must take the time. It has to be proactively put on the schedule, on the agenda, or yes, it will not happen at all. And this is not an easy thing to do by any means, uh, but that's the way to get around the problem that, of course, uh, it is a given. There is not time for exercise. Or just recently, I had a patient tell me, and I love the way this person phrased it, they give themselves the time to do that, right? So if you don't like the idea that you have to take the time away from something else, I admit it does sound a lot nicer, doesn't it? I know I have to give myself the time to go work out. Now, add things to your life to replace things you are subtracting. For example, if you are giving up cigarettes, get rid of that old jacket with the cigarette burn and treat yourself to a new one. If you're cutting calories, choose interesting new foods and recipes, but not high-calorie ones. And if you're giving up junk food, such as potato chips, stock up on healthier options, such as whole wheat pretzels or popcorn, as long as it's not got butter or cheese on it. But uh, let me emphasize, I think a lot of the reason why certain people find that they don't lose weight even when they exercise regularly do you think it might be because they reward themselves for working out by going to have a Sunday afterwards? Just maybe. Also, let's get back to accountability and also, more importantly, support. Tell your friends, family, and colleagues what you're up to so they can offer encouragement and help out. Some may be trying to kick the same bad habit as you, and be willing to join you in your challenge. But watch out for people who may sabotage your efforts. Again, uh, you are going to set and reach your goals at your own pace and set your own standards and beware of people who would denigrate your effort or hold you to a higher standard than you would hold yourself. Now, if you are having difficulty changing on your own. Consider working with a therapist or a counselor 
who can help you navigate these stages of change. Cognitive behavioral therapy may be particularly useful. It helps to identify and change maladaptive thinking and behavior that keep you stuck in bad habits. Now, there are also computer-based programs, either self-administered or guided by a counselor, designed to promote behavioral change. And yes, there are apps for that, which uh, I'm not sure how I feel about that, but you know what? Um, With the lack of availability of sufficiently trained and skilled cognitive behavioral therapists and a terrible lack of health insurance coverage to pay for seeing said therapists, it actually is a good thing that there are uh, smartphone apps and computer-based programs that will uh, give people some sort of cognitive therapy-based guidelines to help them make changes. And in a subsequent podcast, I'm going to be talking about uh, cognitive behavioral therapy delivered in that manner, either by apps or on the computer, for insomnia. So stay tuned for that. Well, with that, folks, I hope uh, you found that interesting and informative because it's time to wrap up tonight's podcast. I enjoyed bringing all this to you, and I hope that Till we meet again next time, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.